Word nerd. Wordsmith. Wordy. Wordless. Oxford Dictionary says a word is a single, distinct, meaningful element of speech or writing, used with others or sometimes alone. We say each one matters. No extra words is literature, minimalist style. And we're getting you right to the story. Read Across America by Jeff Bockinson. Nowadays, everyone wants to be a nerd. But when I was a kid, I didn't have to pretend. I had the rolling backpack and everything. And when I was in fourth grade, my class took part in a program called Read Across America. Read Across America was a nationwide contest in which students competed to see how many books they could read in a single month, charting their progress on a map of the continental United States. For every book you read, you got to color in a single state of your choosing. Make it to the coast, and you could turn around and go the other way. The winner was the student who crossed the lower 48 east to west and west to east the most number of times. Simple enough. But I wasn't just a nerd. I was competitive, too. Think Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood. I wanted no one else to succeed. I raised my hand for every question. I interrupted my classmates when I thought they were wrong, which, being fourth graders, they often were. I made what I thought were in scholarly jokes between myself and the teacher. I was a scholastic bully, and I was very lonely, as bullies often are. It seemed like I was never any good at the things that fourth graders want to be good at. I certainly wasn't going to qualify for the Presidential Fitness Award. I didn't own any good video games, and I wasn't friends with any fifth graders. But there was one thing I was good at, and by God, I was going to show them all just how good I was. I'd win their respect by winning my class's Read Across America challenge. I had all the advantages. I was an excellent reader, and in preparation for the contest, I'd taken about a dozen of the shortest books from the grade three section of the student library. Cheap, sure, but it's hard to win if you don't play dirty. I'd also mapped out the shortest routes across the country. I could go east to west, North Carolina, Tennessee, Arkansas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Arizona, California, in seven states, and west to east, Oregon, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, Kansas, Missouri, Kentucky, Virginia, in eight. Never in my life have I felt so supremely confident. Also in my class was a girl named Rachel McManus, whose mother had taught us the year before. Rachel was quiet and friendly, with a voice like an untuned violin, and I hated her. I hated her because everyone else liked her, even though she wasn't athletic or friends with any fifth graders, and I hated her because she got special treatment from her mother and from all the other teachers who were also her mother's friends, in the form of being picked first to pass out papers and lead the line to lunch. I hated her with the irrational fire with which weavers must have greeted the sewing machine, or stagecoach drivers the steam engine. Her mere existence threw everything I knew into question. By the second week of the Read Across America contest, I'd reached Oklahoma and was a few pages away from New Mexico. Rachel McManus was in Pennsylvania, having started in New York. The rest of our class was still stuck on the eastern seaboard. When Rachel finished her third book, she opted to fill in West Virginia. If you can picture a map of the United States, you know what an enormous mistake this is. So, apparently, did our teacher, Mrs. Lee. Later that morning, Rachel was called up to Mrs. Lee's desk and quietly filled in Ohio. I called bullshit. Mrs. Lee, I asked as we transitioned from multiplication to grammar. I noticed that Rachel added two states today. I guess she read two books? Mrs. Lee ignored me. So I asked again, loudly enough for the rest of the class to hear. Mrs. Lee said that that was something she and I might discuss after the lesson was over, but I wanted an answer right away. I don't understand, I said looking at my classmates. Do we all get an extra state? 
There were murmurs of assent from dark corners of the classroom. Emboldened, I pushed my point. I could practically hear the thoughts racing through my classmates' heads. What's this? Bakken's and going up against the teacher? I'd never had them on my side before. It was exhilarating. Dizzying. I thrust back my chair and stood. I remember saying something dignified about the need for rules, even in a just society, and how contempt for these rules signifies the first tear in the paper-thin wall separating us from the animals, but Mrs. Lee wasn't having any of it. Jeff, she said, enough. If I was going to be disruptive, I could spend the rest of the lesson in the hallway. I felt stung, bewildered. I thought that Mrs. Lee and I understood each other, but now, giving witness at my desk, I came to the awful realization that of course she hadn't just allowed Rachel to fill in an extra state she'd actually suggested it. And this betrayal by an adult whom I respected and whom I needed to enforce the rules that kept order in the classroom and kept me from getting hit or tripped on the playground or any number of other places where Wayne Murphy and Eugene Giraud might find me alone and vulnerable, along with the pressure of leading my first radical assault on the powers that be, was simply too much to publicly bear. A tear began to pool at the corner of my eye. And then, as I tried to press my point one final futile time, I felt the tear detach and slide down my cheek, another gathering to take its place. Suddenly I was crying, and all around me the support of two dozen nine and ten-year-olds turned to disgust. I'd had my shot, and I'd whiffed. Blown it. I buried my head in my hands and waited for the lunch bell to ring. By the time I felt safe enough to open my eyes, the classroom was empty except for Rachel, who was apologizing profusely, and Mrs. Lee. Mrs. Lee asked Rachel to leave. Then she sat down at the desk next to mine. You always knew things were serious when an adult sat down next to you. She asked me why I thought Rachel had got to fill in an extra state. I told her the honest truth, that it was because Rachel's mom was a teacher and one of Mrs. Lee's friends. Mrs. Lee shook her head. She delivered one of those speeches that every kid hears once in a while, and every teacher gives more often than they like to, about how reading is very easy for some people and very difficult for others, and that some people from time to time need a little extra support and understanding. I told her, yeah, sure, but there was still a difference between helping someone and helping someone cheat. Mrs. Lee listened and nodded. She said that giving a state to someone else wasn't the same as taking a state away from me, and there was no way that Rachel or anyone else in the class was going to catch me. I needed to be able to celebrate their success, too. With that, I went reluctantly down to lunch. No fourth grader cried and got away with it. Of course, the only open seat in the entire cafeteria was next to Rachel McManus. I don't know if this was the cold hand of karma, or more likely if the most considerate fourth grader in Bancroft Elementary's venerable history had left a spot open specifically for me. I sat puffy-eyed and didn't say anything, and she didn't say anything to me. And given the circumstances, I think it was the best lunch either of us could have imagined. I'd like to say that I saw the error of my ways and that Rachel and I became lifelong friends, but I have no idea where she is now. It wasn't until I got home that afternoon and relayed the entire episode to my mother, who was a special education teacher at another school, that I finally understood what Mrs. Lee had meant. There was a reason, of course— that Rachel was asked to pass out papers and lead the line, and it had nothing to do with the fact that her mother had been our teacher the year before. I simply hadn't known any better. A week and a half later, I stood in front of the class and received first prize in our Read Across America contest. I'd read 14 books, nearly one every other day, and one state short of crossing our great nation twice. 
It was, until the geography the following fall. My proudest moment. The read across America ribbon still sits on the dresser in my childhood bedroom, between my geography trophy and my spirit award from basketball camp. I also have a paper doll that Mrs. Lee brought back from a trip to China, she and I having ultimately resolved our differences in pedagogical theory. What sticks with me most, though, is how quickly everyone moved on. The next day dawned just like the day before it, and no one said a word as I walked to the front of the classroom and colored in New Mexico. No one pretended to object or burst into tears. Of course, I still got made fun of for everything else, for failing the presidential fitness exam, for not having any good video games, or knowing any older kids, for being just a little too proud of my fractions worksheet. Maybe this one was just too easy. Maybe they were embarrassed for me. Or maybe Rachel or Mrs. Lee or some other mature person took my classmates aside one by one and reminded them that we all have our strengths and weaknesses, and that there are some people who, from time to time, need a little extra support and understanding. It's a lesson I try to remember as often as possible. Hello there! Welcome to No Extra Words, the Flash Fiction Podcast. My name is Chris Baker-Dirsch, and I'm your producer and editor. I'm often amazed at how stories selected months ago, Jeff Bakkinson's story was selected to run in this episode back in February. I just looked at my notes. Um, can really speak to a particular time in which they're recorded. I used to write it off to chance and just good karma and the gods of the submissions file. And while that certainly has something to do with it, I'm starting to think that it's me and that I, as a reader, come to these stories given the time and the place that I'm in when it comes time to record them. That's certainly very true of the pieces being featured this week. This episode, when it was first conceived all those many months ago, and by the way, February to September is a long time for even me to plan ahead. This story was put on the calendar quite early, but when it was conceived all those many months ago, this was supposed to be the back to school episode. September 1st, right before Labor Day, it only made sense. And I think it still is that, but given the situation in the world and the situation in my chaotic brain, it feels a little bit today like it goes beyond that. In recent episodes, I find myself talking more and more about my mom, and I'm not entirely sure why. I did an interview um, on a new podcast that is just launching called Pearls from My Mother, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, is actually being released my episode today. Um, watch my social media because as soon as I hear it coming out, I will let you know. But this podcast is entirely about people, I think primarily women, who have lost their moms talking about the bits of wisdom that their mothers shared with them that shapes how you see the world. And doing that interview, I think, has made me reflect more on her, as have other things just going on in life. My mom's been gone for 22 years, and while she's never far from me, as I discuss in that interview, grief 
goes in cycles, it goes in waves, and after you've after someone has been gone for a long time, missing them becomes more part of your everyday and not so much that you focus on moment to moment because life has moved on a great deal since then. But I've talked about her on the last couple of episodes, and she's on my mind as I put together this one. She was a teacher. She was a stay-at-home mom for 16 years, and she was a teacher, primarily a primary school teacher. In the years I knew her, she was primarily a preschool teacher. And my parents are both teachers. My dad taught high school for 30-plus years. And my mom's ability to see her kids and to see the lessons that she taught in those early years of childhood um, carrying forward in life was a special gift that she had. And it was one that often made me jealous as a child because I wanted that attention on me. And even in the years when she wasn't full-time in the classroom, she still always had her kids who needed her. And one of the things I always think of when I think of her as a teacher is I think of a poem that she loved. And I, of course, don't have the rights for it, so I'm not going to read it. But it is all I really need to know I learned in kindergarten. It comes from a book by Robert Fulgham. And get the book. I'm sure your library has it. Or Google the poem. Excerpts of it are all over online. But the central point of this poem is that the things that we really need to know to make it in this world are not the things that we learned in graduate school, but the things that we learned in the sandbox in kindergarten when we were five. Things like put things back where you found them, say you're sorry when you hurt somebody, warm cookies and cold milk are good for you, and flush. And he says it's all there. Basic sanitation, ecology, world peace, it's all in there. If you look hard enough. I think about... I don't want to go into the world we're living in right now. I really don't. This isn't that kind of show. And to be perfectly honest, I'm just going to be blunt with you people. I have been avoiding this podcast. I am recording this. It is 9.46 on August 31st. In my regular life, this episode would have gone out an hour and a half ago and I would be headed for bed. But I've been putting it off. And it's because I don't know how to talk about the world we live in right now. I feel like everything I say is going to be wrong, is going to be not what I mean, is going to offend one side or another, even though I'm not sure at this moment if I care. Um, and so I don't know what to say. And I am not someone... If you listen to this on a regular basis, you can probably assume that I am not someone who often finds myself at a loss for words. So it's a frustrating place to be. And there's enough in my personal life that's making me tired right now, like literally tired because we're doing a remodel of my house without the tiredness that I feel in the culture everywhere. And so I don't know what to say. If you're a contributor of mine, I probably owe you an email. And it's because... I find myself doing podcast avoidance. I was listening as I was driving home today to NPR. And they did an interview with two women. One is African-American and one is Sudanese-American. And they have a podcast called The Stoop. 
which I have not listened to, but which is definitely now on my list after hearing them talk. And the goal of their show is to bring the conversations that black people have, this is their words, not mine, just out into the world. So it's supposed to be part your mama's kitchen and part the hairdressers and part the places where people get together and they really talk about the things they talk about. And the interviewer asked one of them, said, you know, race is a big issue in the world right now and you can't turn on the news without it being front and center, without it being all of that. And do you talk about that? Is this what the show is about? And she said, we think of ourselves as cultural rather than political. And she said, this really resonated with me. She said, everybody's got their, their podcasts that do that really well already, that cover the political, the news. If you want one, go get one. There are some great ones. She said, everybody's got their role to play. And this is mine, is to have the cultural conversation. And I feel that way about this little show that I do, that the role that I play in this crazy mixed up world we live in is to tell the stories, to try to make sense of it, whether those stories challenge you to think more or simply distract you from the world you live in now. That's the role I play. And it doesn't save the world. But I think there is a value in holding space for the voices of people to talk. And today, they're talking about the future. The kids. Those people who we all once were, as Jeff Pawkinson brings home in this story, that we all have those memories of the first time we figured out there was something called somebody different. The first time we realized we were wrong. The first time we listened to a different perspective. The first time somebody saved us from ourselves. Pretty sure we all have that. And there are a bunch of 9 and 10 year old kids going back to school all over America and all over the world this week, and they have it too. One of the things that Robert Fulgham says in his poem, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, one of the things we learn in kindergarten is when you go out in the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. I don't know what I want in this world right now. I don't know how to fix the places that are broken. I don't know how to have the conversations we need to have except to continue to hold space for writers to tell their stories. But I do know this. I don't think there's any problem that's been made worse by people holding hands, watching out for traffic, and sticking together. So for today, we're going back to school, remembering the things that we learned there, things that I'm pretty sure all of us, regardless of where we fall in this crazy mixed up world, can remember learning. That's my dog. That's the kind of week it's been. The dog is recording with me. I'm so sorry. That's Jasper. Say hi, Jasper. Yep, he's here too. Um, 
But wherever you happen to be in the world, grab hands. I'll hold hands with you. And let's stick together. I'm bringing you some writer spaces coming up next, just to lighten things up a little bit. And then ending today with a story of pure, unadulterated childhood joy for you to take into your back-to-school season. And whatever happens in the next two weeks, I plan on being here with more stories to tell on No Extra Words. My name is Audra Kerr-Brown, and welcome to my writing space. If you're looking at the picture, you can see that it's really cluttered, and um, I'm going to have to talk really fast because I have a lot to talk about. But if you look on the left, that's my desk. It's perpendicular to the wall. The other one you can barely see is my husband's. It's flush to the wall. But mine is facing the room because I am traumatized by Stephen King, <laughs> as many of us are. Um, but I watched an adaptation of Silver Bullet, and ever since then, I have to be facing the room and the window and the doors because if I'm too engrossed in my work, a werewolf might actually come sneak up on me and attack me. So that's why my desk is in that position. Um, if you look at the top, there's a black and white photo, actually three photos of me and my sister. That was our first time in a Kmart photo booth way back in the 80s when I was in fourth grade. Um, you see there's some cork boards around me, and those are full of newspaper clippings and quotes and pictures and things that keep me inspired to write. Up to the left of that is a picture I took in 4-H of a tractor headlight, and I have a little ribbon on that. On the other side of the cork boards, there's an Iowa State Fair poster. I live in Iowa. I love Iowa. I love the State Fair. On top of that is a little wooden American Gothic replica of the uh, famous farmhouse window. That's actually here in Iowa. It's a real house, and you can visit it, so I had to have that. Next to that is a clipping from Pop Shop Magazine, an illustration for my story called The Secret. And the illustrator was Mitt Roshan, and he's really good. And I love looking at his picture. Um, next to that is a movie poster from the film version, a small short film, of my short story, Your Father Frederick. And yes, that is a silhouette of a wolf on there. I keep writing about wolves and werewolves because I think it's going to help me get over my fear, but I really don't think it's working. If you look on the CPU unit, there is a plush of Roz from Monsters, Inc. I love Roz. She inspires me. And if you look down on the file cabinet, there is a fake National Geographic cover of Henry Jones from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Indiana Jones is my favorite movie franchise. And it says on there, Henry Jones and the Holy Grail. Did he finally find it? And you can't see, but behind my wooden chair, I have a framed acceptance letter from the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop Summer Program. I have a framed letter from my rhetoric teacher from my undergrad days that's really inspiring. And also an email from Brett Lott that is inspiring. So as a writer, I have to be surrounded by inspiring things and by lots of encouragement. So that's me and um, continue to explore the picture. There's a lot of fun things there. Thanks for visiting.
Hi, I'm M. Pepper Longlinay, author of various mystery and fantasy novels, and I want to welcome you to Little London, my home office. It's a wedge-shaped room with a shuttered window that looks out on our front porch, which is handy for seeing people coming. I have a chaise under the window so I can enjoy the morning sun that slants in. I'm kind of like a cat that way. I like to find a sunspot. There are two pillows on my chaise. Um, one is a TARDIS pillow, and the other is a Sherlock Holmes book pillow. I also keep a, a large stuffed otter on my chaise. His name is Philo. I got him from the aquarium in Vancouver. My office walls are lined with overstacked bookshelves. I'm sure that's true of many authors. Besides the books, though, I have lots of figurines, candles, just a bunch of different things that I've collected over time. I love candles and incense. I like to burn things that make my office smell nice while I'm working. Some of the items I have, like, are uh, I have a skull from Hamlet because I've acted and directed that play in particular many times. I have a Lego Tower Bridge, which you can see in the photograph, and also a statue of Bast and another of Nike. My son also created a little clay Stonehenge. On top of one bookshelf, I have a pop-up book of London, and I change the pages periodically for a different view of the city. My walls have framed prints of various London neighborhoods. There's a map of London on one wall. There's a massive clock that resembles Big Ben. There's a framed original piece of artwork from Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics. I keep a whiteboard as a vision board, and I have my old license plates from previous to our move. They read S-H-R-L-C-K, short for Sherlock, because my first stories were Sherlock Holmes stories. Because of the odd shape of my room, my desk sort of floats in the middle of the floor facing the double doors. It's a large wooden desk because I stack so much stuff I need the space. Um, I'm one of these messily organized people where I keep stacks of stuff, but I know where everything is. Um, So please don't move my stuff. I have, you know, uh, another little stuffed otter on my desk, a stuffed raven, a dragon, a little Kylo Ren, um, Tsum Tsum, and then, you know, my laptop, which takes up the least amount of room. I think the most notable thing on my desk is my Dalek. He's a limited edition and he talks, but only when I ask him to. I hope you've enjoyed the tour of the room, and if you take a look at the photo that accompanies this, um, there's a video tour of my office on my Facebook page, and you can find all of my uh, links on my website, which is pepperwords.com, P-E-P-P-E-R-W-O-R-D-S.com. Thanks again for listening. Uncovered Track by Matt Page Paul and Tyrese watched, faces proudly beaming, as Janie slapped the last shovelful of mud into place with the underside of her spade. 
To make sure the curve was perfectly rounded, Janie knelt in the dirt and smoothed it gently with her stained hands. This had been her greatest idea. Both Paul and Therese had told her so. In fact, they thought it may be the greatest idea of all time. Once every speck of dirt was in its proper place, Janie stepped back and joined her team. The three architects stood silently in the middle of the McCarthy Woods and admired the fruits of their labor. It was even better than they had imagined. Then, as if on the cue of some imaginary starter's pistol, the three scrambled for their helmets. Two months earlier, on the final day of school, during the final recess of the year, Janie had unveiled her plans to Paul and Therese. She had been walking through the McCarthy Woods a few weeks prior with her parents when they happened upon a section of the forest that had caught her eye. It was covered in leaves and fallen branches, but was mostly vacant of trees. It was far enough away from the train tracks that her parents wouldn't worry, but it was also well enough into the woods that most people would never find it. It was perfect. So Janie began the planning. She dragged her father back out into the woods and with his help, meticulously measured out the area. She took those measurements and mapped them out in the back of one of her math notebooks. She then began to plot the course. The visions of banked corners, S-turns, double jumps, and whoop-de-doos raced from her imagination onto the page. There was at times furious erasing, but it was not long before the track's outline was cemented. During that final recess, she recruited Paul and Tyrese to help her make the squiggly lines in her notebook become reality. Every spare moment each of the three had from that point forward was pledged to the track. Between soccer practices, birthday parties, chores, and cottage vacations, there was only the track. They poured their hearts and souls and sweat into the realization of Janie's dream, and now it was carved amongst the trees, a monument to their hard work and dedication. With helmets snugly strapped in place, the three hoisted their bikes, which had spent most of the summer resting in the dirt patiently waiting to be set free, and they climbed aboard. And then they were off. Janie smiled as she whipped around the first corner into a straightaway of moguls, which she navigated expertly. Her smile stretched into a grin when she slashed through the S-turn, her tires kicking up dirt in all directions. Her grin spread into a look of pure joy as she aimed her bike at the biggest jump on the track. There were only three weeks left before school started again, but when she hit that jump and felt her tires lift from the dirt for the first time, she knew it was going to be the best three weeks of her life. Thanks for listening to the No Extra Words podcast. For more information about today's stories and contributors, or to learn how to submit your own work, please visit us at noextrawords.wordpress.com. If you would like to support the show, please tell a few friends about us, or you can visit patreon.com slash noextrawords to pledge your financial support. See you next time.